This is Coda Radio, episode 343 for February 4th, 2019. Dakota Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that's digging in, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development. My name is Wes, and I'm joined once again by our favorite, Mr. Michael Dominic. Good afternoon, Wes. How are you? I am doing good. Sounds like maybe just a little bit better than you. Although over here in the Pacific Northwest, we've had something of a snow day. I know. You're, you're up there in the Arctic. Now, I do have a quick question. Oh, yeah, go on. Were there any rail accidents near you or Chris? I don't think so, no. I mean, uh, as far as I know, trains are running on time. I see. I'm uh, I'm on the hunt for Bruce Willis. Let's hear more. How's your hunt going? What are you armed with? I am armed with bones that shatter easily. I am armed with a wheelchair and a comic book art gallery that somehow stays in business with no actual marketable products. Oh, Mr. Glass. That's right. We should have known, Wes, because of the children. All right. Well, let me trade a question right back at you, Mr. Dominic. Well, what I observed since last time we spoke, there's been a lot of hubbub, a lot of people enjoying your enjoyment of Rust. How's it going over there? You know, Rust is kind of like what I imagine joining the Jedi Order would be like. It's magical. It's scary. It sometimes doesn't make sense. So does that mean they, um, when I saw you bought the Rust book, does that mean they send you like a nice Jedi robe that you get to wear while you're studying? So for every hundred lines of Rust you write that actually is quote unquote correct, it's safe and compiles, you, um, yeah, you, you get one more inch in your robe. It's almost like a lab coat. Um, if you're familiar with the Clone Wars, you're like one of those Jedi who doesn't talk, kind of just silently just judges. There, yeah. Yeah. Silently judges the other Jedi. Yep. <laughs> well, have you have you made any any little test programs that you're particularly proud of, or looked at any community projects? Uh, I have looked at some community projects. Some of the Rust embedded stuff has been pretty interesting. Now, is it a community project if it's meant to more efficiently deliver Jar Jar Binks clips to Chris? Oh yeah, of course. That's an that's an important thing, and I'm pretty sure his feed's not yet entirely saturated. Yeah, I I, I think there's like the, there's room for more charger. I just you know throwing it out. Always there. room for more charger. So if I can do that and use less memory and therefore get more charger in, that that seems right. Yeah, I did notice someone uh, started playing with implementing Python in Rust, and that seems like kind of a fun project. Yes. I always find that, you know, writing interpreters or compilers or other things, it's it's different than, you know, a lot of the day-to-day programming you might do is kind of just, at least these days, tying different APIs together. You install a couple libraries, you connect up to some external services or write to disk or a database. And when you're writing, you know, when you're playing with implementing languages, you kind of flex different parts of a language. Yeah, I was taking a look at that project on GitHub. I did not understand, like, why I would want that. But it seems like just somebody's kind of, you know, for their education, kind of edification. It definitely goes to show the power of Rust, though, that you can write a 
pretty performant Python interpreter in Rust. And it's not the craziest thing in the world, to be honest with you. Like, it's actually... It's not a terrible Python interpreter. Yeah, that's that's another nice thing, is it, it can be helpful when you're learning a language to you know, find projects that are at the right scale. It can be pretty intimidating if you're just learning the idioms to dive into a big code base. But if you can find something, you know, someone's just started with, they're still fleshing out parts, but it's big enough to have some like real code in it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I certainly wouldn't recommend if anybody's coming on this rest journey with me that they write a Python interpreter, right? As their learning project. It's definitely a good example of, I won't say ease, but the the relative... Mm. Compare compared to like a C, and maybe I will say ease, the relative ease compared to like an old C language. Ease versus power, I guess, if that makes sense, Wes. I feel like I'm a little at C here, but no, no, of course, yeah, it is. It is that um, ease versus power is, I think, the perfect way to describe it. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's gonna. It's, I am in the beginning of this journey, right? So it's it's gonna take me certainly some time before I'm anywhere near a proficient developer in rust how much i mean what have you what have your uh, has the compiler been are, are you having a good relationship with the compiler or a little bit a little bit testy so i have restricted myself to try to do things the quote-unquote good rust way meaning thou shalt not use that unsafe keyword yes right exactly leave that to the masters yeah it's if i have a good relationship um it reminds me of catholic school my knuckles are very much sore from being smacked with the, you know, ruler of the compiler, be like, nope, can't do it, nope. But it's forcing me to think in ways I don't normally think about code, which I am hoping will, even if I don't end up using a ton of Rust in production, will make me a better developer overall in, for example, Ruby or, you know, C Sharp. Sure. I, I saw some commentary on Hacker News earlier this week of someone posting a, a Swift program that had, had some um, some threading and, and value types involved. And there was some confusion over like how when mutation was happening, well, what exactly was happening. And someone rigged up like a, a basically conceptually the same version in Rust and then showed the compiler output from, from Rust saying like, this represents potential unsoundness in your code. And, and, and indeed it did, right? That was the whole point. So it's nice that you can actually get, you know, if, if you go through the steps and the work, there's some real huge benefits. Yeah, Rust makes you do the work, right? There, there's, I mean, sure, you could throw the unsafe keyboard, but let's just pretend you're not going to do that. This is this sounds so kind of, kind of jerky, but Rust makes you actually think about what you're developing before you develop it. I, I guess is what I would say. I love that. I, you know, um, a, a popular saying is uh, hammock time, you know, and, and for a lot of programs, not all, sometimes you just need to like get in there, kind of hack some stuff together and figure it out. But the design phase is important. You want to make sure you're actually doing something that, that makes sense and that you've thought through how the data flows through your program. Wait, 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 wait. Architecture? Come on now. Let's let's not be silly. Oh, wait. This is Coda Radio. Are we, are we going to write documentation to next? I mean... We'll see. Maybe next year, Mike. We we should all have something to strive for. We'll celebrate Code Radio 400 with one page of documentation. Okay, so speaking of uh, development best practices or worst practices, I don't do much development over in the land of uh, Apple, iOS, the App Store, but I know you do, and boy, howdy, there was some big drama last week. Well, do you have my bell? Oh, I wish. I wish. No, I don't do wish. Well, I'm going to do it. Ding, ding. For years, I was right. 
but we won't even get to it. I think we have to walk our Linuxy friends down the Apple path here for a moment. Yes, I think so, right? Because there's a lot going on. There's a special type of certificate. There's kind of a long history from these, com- these other companies using the certificate. So could you, can you break it down for us? Yeah. So long-time listeners will know that I have been complaining about code signing since the T-Rex ruled, uh, ruled Washington State. Now, in Florida, he still does. We call him out an alligator if he's still in charge. Oh, yeah, right. The code signing I was talking about was for the App Store or for development deployments. We are going to talk about code signing in a completely different context today. We're going to talk about sideloading apps, which I know shouldn't be allowed, but kind of is, via internal enterprise apps. Uh, in Android, you can there's a little there's a little switch you can flick that says, "Okay, I'm willing to damage my system, maybe, and I'll, I'll, I'm allowing myself to install third-party APKs." But you don't. Or there is no such Android, switch. You've already damaged your system. So. <laughs> yes, I'm willing to further damage my system. But on iOS, right? There is sure there's some stuff like um, test flight. There's other methods that you can sort of beta test or get a little bit of code for personal use to run, but not for larger deployments. So yeah, the so. Other than the App Store, there's about three other ways to do this, right? One is test flight, which you're allowed to do a thousand devices, which for a lot of people is just all they need to ever do. Right. The third is what used to be test flight, but like now is people use hockey app. The problem with that is you can sideload apps in an ad hoc way, but you only get a hundred of each device type, which sounds like a lot, but but actually really, really is not. So like it's it's hard to live in that world anymore. The third is what's called an enterprise ad hoc certificate, um, the enterprise certificate for short. That is basically what you're describing, Wes. The difference is instead of on Android where you say allow untrusted sources, you actually do it per organization. So, for instance, you could do you know Jupyter Broadcasting or Linux Academy. I am sure has an enterprise certificate running around somewhere if they have you know iPad apps that they care about. Or, and to be clear, when we say iPad apps, we mean internal iPad apps, right? So these are things that probably are not going to be on the App Store, or they could be alpha or beta versions. You know, I I know nothing about the Linux Academy iPad app, but I'm just going to make something up. Let's say it's at version 2.2. It wouldn't be insane for them to give me and Wes uh, version 2.3 on, on our iPads because, you know, we're hosts of shows here, right? Just to test and see if everything's fine. I see. Right. It kind of reminds me of um, some enterprises have their own TLS certificates or, or you know root certificates that they have yes. pre-installed on machines so that you have have trust on the local domain. So kind of the same well, thing. Well, that's exactly what they are. They're root certificates for iOS. Got it. And then so whatever for your device will trust those and it's meant to be used, right? And it's, I think it's stipulated in their policies that it's meant to be used for the for internal applications that aren't for wider deployment. Yeah, it is. Uh, the two acceptable uses are you are... QAing a to be public version of an existing app. Again, that's my version 2.3 example right, of, a right. Linux, of a theoretical Linux Academy app. Or you are indeed, you know, just using this internally, a great example. Um, you know, we could have a Jar Jar Banks send Chris a meme app. That's a dumb example. I'll give you a real world example. Facebook employees evidently don't know how to order burritos, and they had a custom app for that that they used internally. Oh, right. Yeah, I know like some other uses that people were talking about is like internal like navigation and map apps or or getting getting hailing rides from between different campus locations. Yeah, another great example, Google Chelsea, um, years ago when I was up there, they had a bunch of custom iOS apps if you like were in a rush and really, really want coffee, like stuff like that. Like 
because you know the support staff you could be taken care of via um a number of different apps you could you could book all kinds of things right it's, it's not super important right? but like laundry or whatever well because facebook is evil i don't even know what to say <laughs> I mean, there's a whole rabbit hole there of, of privacy implications, yeah. weird incentives, and the the whole thing. They decided to pay teenagers and other folks, but mostly teenagers, $20 to install their root enterprise certificate on their phone. These teenagers were not employees of Facebook. So that in itself is a gross violation of the developer agreement. Quote unquote, Facebook research. It was the name of the app. Boy. Yeah, it's a, but it's a lot more complicated than that, right? So it used to be called um, something with an O that they bought from an Israeli firm. It was rejected from the App Store. It was actually booted from the App oh, Store. Oh, right. And this is like, it'll set up a VPN that goes, sends all their yes. stuff through Facebook's data centers and lets them, well, I guess, do research. the whole thing, though. It's like root access to the phone. So text messages, the whole kink. Wow. So Facebook thought. They would be cute by like changing the info dot plus data for the app, giving it a different name, and then um, basically paying people to install the enterprise. I, I love that the plus right. You pull up that little uh, that little editor, tweak a That's couple right. config values, save it back out. That's there. all they did. Change the name, change the logo. Amazing. So Apple evidently was informed by a tech journalist that hey, did you did you like not notice this? And Uncle Tim said, I did not notice that, but I'm pretty unhappy about it. So Apple, with the click of a button or the stroke of a keyboard, one assumes it was a magic keyboard. Ah. See what I did there? Revoked Facebook's root enterprise certificate. Now, that might not sound terrible. <laughs> it's it's pretty terrible. <laughs> so what that does is anytime a non-App Store app published by Facebook tries to authenticate with Apple's signing servers, it can't. And therefore, all those apps immediately stop functioning. Wow. Right. So there, this is this is where it sort of starts to get very interesting because there is like, obviously, as we talked about, Facebook is, is kind of evil. No one liked what they were doing with this app. They had clearly violated the policies of Apple. And on the flip side, I've seen a lot of people making points that like, you know, if you abuse or don't follow the terms of APIs that you, you know, request from Google or Facebook and get keys for, they will happily turn those off for you, no problem. So in some sense, Apple's doing that same thing. And the reaction makes sense in that light. But it kind of also reveals something about the entire ecosystem. Well, there's so many different ways you can take this, right? One is like what Facebook was doing is kind of gross and icky. And like, you know, for for example, their method of getting parental consent was a checkbot that says, do you have parental consent? Are you kidding me? Wow. No, I'm deadly serious. That's insane. So that's like, that's, there's no better word than icky here. Having said that, my my pet pony for years now has been, you know, I mean, if you listen to the show from a long time ago, hey guys, Apple has a tremendous ability to pick winners and losers on their platform. And when they turned off Facebook's certificate, not only this, I would consider a malware app, because frankly, it's Facebook has really tried to say it's people knew what they were doing, but it's it's malware, right? This is this is malware. Um, it crippled Facebook <laughs> for a day. Like, you want a burrito? Better be an Android. <laughs> you want a 
You want to hail a shuttle? Better be on Android. That was kind of the funniest part of the, the fallout here, right? Is that they had this totally for some other reason, and then it, it impacted the day-to-day operations of these campuses. They really had come to rely on these. Are you a developer on one of the Facebook apps that wants to test a, a subsequent version or even a non-release, but perhaps alternative version, right? Maybe you're doing A-B testing. Sorry. Wow. The root certificate's revoked. So this is um, crippling. And by the way, Google had a similar program going on. They were doing a little bit of screen scraping in their version of the app. The interesting thing, though, is Google immediately apologized. And then Apple hit them, but brought them back. Um, Facebook kind of tried to defend themselves in a way that was, again, icky. So, I don't know, Wes. I mean, this is kind of like Godzilla and, uh, and Mothra fighting. And I feel like the only people really losing are is downtown Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of there is a lot of fallout, and there's some kind of questions I had around. I mean, like, I was looking at some of the requirements to get one of these um, enterprise certificates, and actually, they're not cr- crazy unreasonable. There's a bunch of like you have to have you know a, be a legal entity associated with this business, and you need blah, a DMV blah, blah. number. Yeah, you need but, EIN but it, number. Doesn't, it doesn't yeah. seem like it's shut out people. Like if you had a, a, a business that had a reasonable use case for that, it seems like maybe they would consider I, giving I have you one. one of these certificates. Okay, right. So that was one aspect I was kind of concerned of because if it is only like, are you a serious big enterprise? No, you don't need to be. You, you just need to be a business that exists. And, and by the way, business could be a sole proprietorship. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. It could be a dude. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So the other part, right, that is scary is it's not even the part, the, the fact that they immediately stopped working, you know, it could be one thing of like, okay, you can't install any new apps that they released using this certificate. Okay. That kind of, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But that you would like in time alter the state of my device. It's kind of like with the Tesla stuff, right? Changing the range, adjusting battery settings on the fly if remotely. It's it's kind of scary. So so this is the 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 banhammer. It is my understanding of this, and I have tried to dig into the documentation to see exactly how this works. For years I have thought that it was kind of an ET phone home system where your custom enterprise app would call the Apple server just to make sure it was okay. That might happen on install, but what it looks like Apple actually did was push and say, from the Apple servers to all these devices, this certificate is revoked. Therefore, the apps cannot run, which is like, I don't know. I know that's kind of a a, a pedantic difference, whether whether the app's phone home asked for permission or the server actually pushing into the devices. But I, I kind of don't think it is if you slow down and think about it. Say, Apple from Cupertino just like push some whatever, some JSON or however the hell they do this to all these iOS devices. You know it's JSON or worse, it's XML. It's probably a plist. Um, <laughs> the plist of death. And just nuked a bunch of apps. So they theoretically and like it's not theoretical right they they in fact have this power over everybody and they've just like never chosen to use it before i'm i was a little taken aback by that yeah right that that is true it, they have had this power the whole time and it's one of those it's kind of like a lot of stuff in the privacy world where a lot of you know people kind of more in the know who are already concerned about privacy sat back and said 
everyone else, yeah, you see what we've been complaining about and talking about all the time? It's not just theoretical. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I wish it had happened to somebody who wasn't quite so icky as Facebook. Because I think we'd be having a better conversation about, well, when the manufacturer and platform vendor of my device and mobile operating system can simply decide that they don't like the software I'm running on it and like break that, right? They can break that. Is that good? Like in this case, they have a lot of like moral indignation because like what Facebook was doing was like unbelievably gross. Right. But let's just like, I hate to sound like a Facebook apologist because I actually think like this is a company who can't go out of business fast enough. Sorry, guys. They used to try to recruit me all the time. Yeah, I mean, they, they make some interesting technology, and they certainly seem to pay well, but uh, I don't know if you could support what they're doing. I don't know. They're like skinning kittens, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, right. doesn't matter if you write the cool new block device driver that's super interesting technically if at the end you're like, like supporting Facebook that. thought this was a good idea, right? Like, I, I, you know, I have ranted and raved about being annoyed with, like, App Store rulings and stuff like that but i have never thought to like massively sideload any of my apps to steal people's data or because i was unhappy with an app store ruling like i have been unhappy with feedback from the app store i have felt at times that they were like capricious or like worse than that arbitrary like one time they bitched about something because they felt the logo or the color was too close to something that apple made oh wow yeah but but like you know, I may have like raged and we didn't even have Slack at the time for JB, but raged in IRC or Telegram or whatever. But like then I, you know, woke up the next morning and was an adult and, you know, just complied. Moved with- on with your business. Yeah. Right. I didn't like try to make this crazy end run around the developer agreement, which I don't know. I, I don't like that Apple has this power, but... I'm a little scared that if they didn't, what would folks like Facebook be doing unchecked? Right. So that was going to be my next question here is um, it seems like part of iOS and, and the App Store success has been that tight control. I mean, there's the one side of it with like a you know a really well-defined SDK and visual design targets and, and that whole thing. But the other side of it is like they police the App Store. They make they try to enforce privacy respect and restrictions. There's there is a hard hand. And I guess like the upside of that is instead of an instead of an open platform, you have something that you can kind of expect works well, and is of a certain quality. Well And maybe that's so. not true, but that's what a lot of that's what a lot of happy iPhone users who are also, let's say, desktop Linux users on their workstation say. You know, they have a device that simply just works. Again? I, I'm not gonna I don't want to name names. Let's just say there's certain prominent members of Let's the community. Just say a guy who who is a fisher of men, perhaps. Oh perhaps. Okay. So dirty little secret. Let's open the kimono here. There are a lot of unscrupulous iOS developers who are doing things very similar to this with enterprise certificates. This is not that uncommon. I am not one of them because I just like it's too much work. You know, the the risk doesn't uh, the reward doesn't warrant the risk kind of thing. But there there is an entire marketplace of I I guess we would call them like gray market iOS software that are using these enterprise certificates inappropriately. The reason you haven't heard about like a crazy banhammer is because Apple, while it's against their policy, 
you know, is not going to like swing the ban hammer on some kid who decided to write a Mario emulator. Right. As, as always, it has to be like public enough or in their interest enough for them to actually go use their magic powers. Right. And like, let, let's not, you know, it's not Saint Uncle Tim here. He, he's been dunking on Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook for months now. Right. And there's, been all, there's been all kinds of, right? Yeah. Their fight there. I mean, their longstanding fight with Flash, their longstanding fight. I mean, they don't seem to don't like progressive web apps. There's all kinds of Two stuff. major they don't newspapers. Like. Right. right. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, what, I mean you're a girl, Dev. What do you think? Like, I know you don't work on these restricted platforms like I do, but, you know, I kind of feel like it's. I don't know. I don't know what what I think to be honest with you about this. Like, I don't know if I'm happy. I don't know if I'm sad. I'm a little tired because they're reacting like children. How do you feel? I know you're a freedom penguin. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a little torn. Um, I, I I first started off, boy, like years ago. I was doing like Windows and Mac. Macs have been a part. Actually, I think a Mac was one of my besides a DOS PC. Um, playing Crystal Quest on a Mac. It was one of my first major computing experiences. Uh, learned to type on a Mac. So it's been a long time using Apple stuff. And I started off in the mobile phone world on an iPhone. Uh, back then, jailbreaking was still a bit easier and kind of still a thing. So it was a different or experience. Went out for Geohop. Yeah, right. Woo! And so I've also, and I've also just seen on, you know, after switching to Android, Android's fu- mostly fine for what I need to do. There are times where the camera app is like laggy and I kind of question what I'm doing with my life. But the other times it works pretty reliably and I'm I'm reasonably satisfied with it. But I already have the apps I need and the, the, the Play Store is just uh, just a mess by any metric that you want to choose. You have no guarantees of quality. The reviews don't mean anything. Um, and, I mean, there's those there are some of those things on, on the App Store, too, but there's a certain amount sure. of I don't I don't love their policies. It's always been a weird walled garden uh, and that just bothers me philosophically. But at this point, I'm, I was also someone who used to root his phone all the time. And I was still like, I like the idea that I have the right to do that if I want to. But I, I don't, right? Like, I don't right now. So there is that other aspect of like, well, I want to have even a switch to like use my own certificate as a, you know, without having to apply, like to be able to get a personal use only certificate, kind of like test flight, but with less arbitrary server side restrictions. That you would, would set my mind at ease, but I wouldn't. Yep. The thing is, I don't think I would actually do it. Maybe if I was like testing out a new VPN or like really developing software, maybe. But right now, as a phone user, it just actually, I don't think it would affect my day-to-day life. Yeah, I mean, I used to. And by the way, the thing about having your own personal certificate, you can do that. Oh, All can you? Just plug your phone and text code. Oh, right, right, of course. So I used to, and this is where Mike admits to violating the terms of service. I used to like root my phone and install Cydia. I don't know if you're familiar with. I'm sure oh, you're familiar yeah. with Cydia, right? Yeah. And I, 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 I can neither confirm nor deny if I've played Pokemon Red, Blue, and Yellow on an iPhone. I have done the same thing. Yes, that's one of the right. reasons I did it. Right? I, I want Pokemon right. on the go. So, but at some point, it's like too much of a hassle because every time they rev iOS, all that crap breaks. So I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I think I guess I agree with you with like the one caveat of, you know, Apple is awfully paternalistic for my taste about how they handle like their quote unquote their users. But I don't know, man, there really are foxes in the sand house, right? Like Facebook is in this case, just a bad actor. And it is a good thing that someone was there to, you know, 
fight off the wolves. I'm, I'm mixing my animal metaphors, but you, you get what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, right? Like sure there was do. a shepherd to fight off the wolves. Right. We have seen these like otherwise big, supposedly at least one, one time reputable companies willing to install apps that record you all the time. There's, there's not a lot of limits. And while let's say Android has gotten a little bit better about permissions and be able to set those things, it's still pretty difficult for your average home user to understand each individual app permissions and what they've just agreed to. Um, so how do you... Well, Android, yeah. Yeah, so can I tinfoil hat it? Can I borrow Chris's tinfoil oh, hat? Oh, yeah. You got to crinkle it up real good, though, to, max, to maximize the reflection of those dangerous Maxim- brain, ma- brain waves. I guess reflect the gamma rays. Oh, yeah. If this is what um, they were doing on iOS, where, where there was a guardian at the gate, so to speak, I'm horrified to find out what they're actually doing on Android. I think someone should get a um, a proxy, like Charles Proxy, or one of those um, Wireshark, you know, where you just watch the traffic. Right, man in the middle exactly of your phone, and go like watch what man in the middle of your phone and see. Because I, I have a this is the opinions of Mike do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Jupiter Broadcasting or Linux Academy, but I have a suspicion that those apps are pretty chatty. I'm, I'm just there is one for Android, right? Like. And they have lots of apps on Android. And I know from experience that if I have a native Android app, I can do all kinds of crazy shit with that person's phone. No one can stop me. Yeah, that is well said. The other part that was funny about this whole event is just how much of a weird sort of mind game, psychological mind game it ended up being, right? Because like they they revoked the certificates, but just for a little bit. They weren't saying like, nope, you're done with these things. They still, they were like, well, I guess maybe, I'm curious, one hand, what you think of like the pressures on Apple to not, you know, to, to not revoke those permanently, or at least for a longer time. And the fact that like in a couple days or one day or whatever the time frame was, back in business and like, yes, they've been checked. Google, as you mentioned, apologized. But do you think that would work? Like if they, if you violated it, they they ran the ban hammer against you. Would you get it back so quick? Uh, so there have been cases like that where a small dev shop has violated this policy, and not only do they revoke your certificates, they actually delete your dev account. So the Whoa. irony here is everybody, yeah, everybody's saying how hard Apple has been on Facebook and Google. This was a very light punishment relative to what they would have done to a smaller player. Yeah, like the fact that it had some internal blowback, okay, that was a little bit extra. But otherwise, it's kind of a slap on the wrist for them knowingly violating some policies. So if if Apple finds that you're doing something they don't like, and there's a prominent developer who makes an app called Dash, um, who we were going to have on the show, but then he got in trouble with Apple and didn't want to go anywhere. They revoked his account. And the answer to that problem is open a new corporation and reapply and change your name. <laughs> they they don't... How can I say this without being incendiary? Just be incendiary. You got this. I'll just be incendiary, right? They're not afraid to crush ants. Right? Like... If I so, let's take the case. Let's just say. Let's just say I did what Facebook did, right? Let's just. I I am not asserting that I did. I'm just hypothetically. Not only would they like revoke all my certificates immediately, they would actually like throw me out of the developer program and delete my account, and I would have to open a new company to get a new account. Wow. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Th- it wouldn't just be restored automatically. It wouldn't just kind of come back because, as you said, like... No, yeah. they, wouldn't even, they wouldn't even talk to you. What they do is they send you a form letter. <laughs> it's, it, 
See, it, it's weird how lenient they were because this and I and, and of course you understand why, because like deleting a dev account would also like remove Facebook from iOS, right? Which is crazy. Like they can't do that. Um, and I'm sure Facebook would sue for like antitrust or whatever or non you know, anti competitive stuff. But yeah, we the, hypothetically, you know, West Payne Technologies would no longer be an iOS development company if you did the same thing and you were, you know, an iOS developer. The other the other elephant in this room here is that um right, it's not like we have ten different platforms that people run mobile apps on. I mean, unless you're still using Blackberry. Um right Windows so like, phone for life. Hey, Windows Phone for Life. Hey, there's plenty to love there. Um but right, like so like it means because so many people, especially sort of like relatively affluent or people in big, you know, C-level people, there's just a, a lot of people choose to use that platform. So they have this inherent control just based on that choice. Right. And people who own like five home pods. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, that's like, that's a lot of... Apple sadness. That's a lot of Apple sadness. And unfortunately, I mean, I don't think anything's going to change. So it's kind of an interesting moment to take a beat and reflect on like, what are the realities of the market that we're all kind of playing in here? Uh, and it's really, it's kind of not what we think, but I don't personally, I don't expect anything to change anytime soon. I don't think it's going to change. I mean, I think it's interesting how accepting as a community developers have become of these closed, uh, like closed and, and aggressively managed ecosystems. But that's just, again, my hobby horse. Well, you guys can all let us know. Head on over to coder.show, coder.show slash 343 for this episode specifically. That also reminds me, uh, maybe you're an Apple developer, maybe you have a Mac. Well, some of our new shows, especially Choose Linux, that show we talked about and have been talking about because it's just so darn good, well, they've been trending over on iTunes. So if you lovely viewers and listeners out there happen to have an iTunes account, please go, you know, leave a, a star rating or a review, go subscribe to it there. I know you probably get things otherwise, not that many of us actually use iTunes for that purpose, but it really does help people find that. That's where we get our new users, you know? So how do we attract more people? That's a small step you can take. And if you haven't already listened, go check out Choose Linux, choose Check out the latest user error, also starring Mr. Joe Resington of JB Fame and Abroad. And go check out the latest Linux action news. All of those are good things to listen to after you finish this episode of Coder Radio. Now, Mike, I wanted to get a little more technical today since we've kind of spent things up in high sure. level at the start of the show. I've been hearing a lot of buzz, and I'm really curious what you think because I'm kind of an outsider here. But I've been hearing a lot of buzz about C Sharp 8.0 and some of the stuff mm. around knowable reference types. And I kind of needed, I would like you to explain what's going on there. You know what? I wish I understood. Um, there is a lot of buzz slash rage slash don't go on Reddit about well, that's C Sharp just good 8. Right. <laughs> go on 4chan. It's much better. So C Sharp 8, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago, is adding nullable types, right? Nullable reference types, which is loosely like Swift optionals. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to dig into the exact details of how it works, but basically, Yay. Right, you have nullables. That's great. Now that I'm doing a little bit of Rust and I'm kind of, you know, I, I, I was doing a little Swift before that, I am starting to see the value of, of quote-unquote safety via things like nullables and optionals and all that good stuff. You're kind of, you're diving off just a little bit, taking a sample of the uh, functional programming deep end. Exactly, exactly. C-sharp 
has always been a little different in that there is just like so much existing legacy code. Yeah, how long has it been around now? Like there's a huge amount of yeah. legacy in that language. And the and this is a gross generalization, but it is also the case that it is widely used for line of business applications that have been running forever. So turning on the so there's an option. We should slow down. There's an option in the C sharp A compiler to um, requ- not require, but to mark um, not handling nullable cases as a warning, not an error, but a warning. Well, the issue with that is many corporations and many uh, organizations, development organizations in the .NET world, uh, in their linters, treat warnings like errors, right? So you actually can't like commit or do anything. Oh, yeah, that'll break your CI. You won't be able to merge. Right. And the problem is like if you have C-sharp code from really anything that's not Greenfield, you're going to have like a million of of these warnings. There is some philosophical argument about if nullables are a good or a bad thing. While I do think they make your code slop, like look more like spaghetti-ish, and you end up with a lot more like a sort of gl- sort of checking stuff, right? You you end up counting yeah, for all these, these nullables, which is good because that's trying to kind of what they're trying to help you prevent, right? Is missing the case when something can be null. But there's probably lots of also cases where it didn't really matter, and now you have just extra stuff. Yeah, I mean, when I first saw this in Swift, I was kind of like, okay, do I really need to do all this work? But you know what? I'm coming around to it only because code bases always get larger. They always get more complex. And while it's a little more of a hassle up front, I, I do I see the wisdom in making sure checking all these cases. Again, that's what nullables are for. So I mean unless you unless you can think of a good counter argument, you know, I I don't know that we want to dive into the should you should you care about coding this way? Because I think the answer is yes, right? In fact, other languages are starting to adopt this. Um, and I think in two years, everybody's going to be doing something like, again, either what Swift calls optionals or nullables here. Yeah, I think there's a couple There's a couple issues going on. One is the case of like real optionality, like missing data versus an empty key versus like, do we have this or do we know nothing about it? And how do you handle extensibility and, and sort of naturally extending and growing stuff. And then there's the other case, like null is, a, is seems like an, a special case, right? The, the billion dollar mistake. And I think there are styles of programming. Basically, I think one way or another, you really do need to think about it. Um, and we talked about it a little bit. One strategy is nil punning, um, where you kind of assign stuff so that nil makes sense. So instead of getting like a null pointer exception, when you try to, you know, take the head of, of some list that's actually nil, well, you know, you get some reasonable value, probably nil again, but you get some reasonable value back. Um, so that's one less static style. Uh, there's also sort of stuff where you have like lots of upfront verification and then pass stuff through um, or just having, you know, like not having nulls at all and, and figuring out how to make that work. But I think what we don't want to see is big, complicated programs like you're talking about that have maybe evolved over five, 10 years and you don't really know, right? There is no help. There's no annotations. There's nothing to tell you, like, what are the possible values? And when null is... I think a huge part of the problem is that null isn't really a value. It doesn't play in any of the interfaces that you might want it to, even if that could be implemented and make sense. So you end up with this value that just sort of like shows up and you can't work with and ends up biting you at runtime. Uh, so you're right. Like, I think this is an especially good case to, to be like, can we account for this? Is it easy enough to just say like, sometimes this is null, 
Compiler, help me don't help me not to forget that. Help me check all the places where this could be null and make sure I handle it reasonably. Where I think you have to be careful and you're kind of hitting on is there are probably types of programs or certain code bases where maybe that's overkill or there's another style that could do the same without the verbosity. Like I think I think we kind of get confused sometimes when we talk about programming. Not everything is an enterprise C sharp app. You know, some are, and yeah. like you should do it that way. And there are other programs that, like, you know, maybe they're a script or like a, a small 200 line program and you don't need it. Or just like a Xamarin consumer app that, yes. you know, if it crashes, it crashes. Right. right? Um, I, I would add one thing though. Like, I'm a little sympathetic to the naysayers here, if only for one reason. The last three revisions, so let's say starting at C sharp six, have really changed c sharp i feel um and they've done it in an additive way so like you could be boring and not to use any of the new quote-unquote cool stuff but with i think it was i think it was six maybe it was five the addition of lambdas uh things more of this f sharpie functional you know say my name say my name my name is haskell <laughs> uh kind of stuff is creeping in and, and i could definitely see how you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic because I remember when, like, Swift came in against Objective-C. And, like, somebody's moving your cheese, right? You don't really like it. It's hard, especially in a day-to-day productive language, right? Where you're like, oh, my gosh, what are all these new abstractions I suddenly have to learn? Well, and it's, it's, it's I would say this nullable stuff is even, like, more in your face. Because, like, if you chose not to use, like, lambdas, for instance, you could just not do that, right? Like, totally works to do it the old way. If your boss or some hotshot on your team turns this flag on, you are going to see these warnings, and you are going to have to address them. So, I get it. I, you know, I keep wondering like how much more stuff can Microsoft Voltron onto C Sharp? Yes, right. And the answer is they see a feature in another language, and they basically just go for it. So you were talking about a little bit there and you kind of alluded to, but there's been, there's been pushback in the community, right? Like there's not everyone's happy about it. Yeah. There's, there's been a lot of pushback. Um, I have spent a lot of time this week or last week, rather trying to read some of the counter arguments. I was really trying to find one that I thought was like good, like a good blog post. I didn't find any that I found particularly compelling. Um, I think the like some of them are just like I'm mad because I don't like change, right? Like that's bad. Yeah, you're always going to have the, that. Yeah, right. That, that I, I think that's a stupid argument. But one I I did find that was interesting was like C sharp was meant to be a better Java a OO language, and now we're bolting on all this functional programming stuff to it. I actually think that that's still not a great argument, but I, I see where it comes from. It comes from like a, an idea of like you know what. Haskell is a functional programming language and Haskell is what it is, right? So if you wanted a pure OO language, you could just use Ruby. But <laughs> you sure could. <laughs> you sure could. I'm just telling you. Um, Everything is an object. It's great. I don't even know how to say this right. Emotionally, I get it. I understand that argument. But intellectually, from an engineering perspective, I actually still think it's stupid. And stupid in the nicest way possible, right? Like, it's 
C-sharp is one of these languages that I think, I think in our entire industry, C-sharp actually has a unique place. Oh, yeah. Go, go into that a little bit more because what keeps coming into my mind, and they're both very different, but like obviously the closest thing is Java, which has also evolved you know, with, with lambdas and streams and all that. Sure. And then at the same time, another language that keeps evolving and, and, and growing things is, is JavaScript. So where, where does C-sharp fall in all, all this? So in my mind, C-sharp is being asked if we just like, let's just think about it for a minute. High quality desktop applications for professionals, games, right? Via Unity, yeah. Mono Game, all that fun stuff. You know, enterprise software, web applications via ASP.NET and .NET Core, and all that. That entire like pantheon of Microsoft web technologies, embedded via .NET, embedded via uh, Microsoft or what is it now called Azure IoT? Yep. They oh, their- yeah. Right. Windows embedded, Windows CE. Like there's a, there is a million domains. Like C, you can really program an Arduino board in C sharp, and you can also write like a little, you know, flashlight app for iOS. Um, so again, mobile would be another universe. Absolutely. And and what what I think is happening is that, you know, what if I had to be stranded on a desert island and only know one programming language. It would not be crazy for that language to be C-sharp because you can basically do everything if you know the APIs and the frameworks. But you're asking a lot of one language. I see what you're saying. Like there's, you, there's sort of a, yeah. a trade off here of like, okay, well, C Sharp's been great and lots of good software and bad, but lots of good software has been developed with it. Is the legacy of having that worth trying to graph this stuff versus like everyone just moved to F sharp or, or Swift or whatever, you know, new language that kind of takes that place that's learned from all these things. Um, it, it, what's funny is like our industry hasn't actually been around that long. You know, if you think about like whatever the fifties and we, so we've only been through a couple of these cycles. I don't think we really know what it means. Like Java, maybe in one universe, someone would have expected to have faded away, but no, it's continued and it's changed and it's grafted. Although by and large yep. still runs the old stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, Java is another weird case. I think I think Java actually should have been where C sharp is, but because of weird Oracle stuff, it's right? Not. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Right. So we just ignore that. Like I, I think about Ruby a little bit here, right? Where it is theoretically possible for me to program an IoT board in Ruby, right? Like there are libraries that will let me do that. Mm-hmm. I can certainly, and I have written my my some of my utility scripts for like just like day-to-day stuff are in Ruby. Same. That, that's not the optimal use for Ruby. <laughs> right. And, and no one's claiming that Ruby should be this, you know, one size fits all programming language for a million different things, right. For mobile apps to, you know, triple A games where C sharp Microsoft is actually trying to do that, right. They're trying to say, this is the one language to rule them all. Yeah, you're right. I mean, because it does kind of like it plays, especially with some of the uh, like the link stuff. You can kind of write like high level data pipeline processing. But at the same time, .NET's a surprisingly static runtime environment. So you can have, you know, like a pretty lean, low latency GC that you're running with. You can run in small environments. Well, and there's all kinds of adapters for lower level stuff, right? I mean, if you really want to get really into the dark side, you can call into the old Windows com APIs. Oh, is that? Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you might, I don't, why you would do that is You got to take maybe. several showers after, I'm pretty sure. You just cry yourself to sleep, it's fine. Right, the tears, they're cleansing. They're cleansing. I don't know how we got to the Calm API, I think we hit a wall. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm glad to hear that you're for it. I mean, it kind of also reminds me of some of the transitions shops went through with like deploying Scala um, in like Java shops, where you could kind of use it as oh, like yeah. a you know just a better a better Java with some fancy stuff. But then you have some people maybe on your team that really go off the deep end and explore cats or other you know other super functional libraries, doing lenses and getting super Haskell about it. And it does seem like in a team environment where both of those languages shine. You have to be you have to be really aware of you know what are what are the standards other people are going to reasonably be able to use and learn and where is the where's the the curve change on the value to safety sort of thing right because you do want safe apps you want safe code but especially in a business environment at the end of the day like it's got to be safe enough to work reasonably well perfect ends up never shipping yeah it'll be interesting to follow. unless it's in rust then it automatically ships <laughs> right yeah exactly once it compiles you just you just ship it and it's it's done. you know it's perfect if it compile listen if it compiles it's perfect isn't that the rust motto i, I believe so haskell, haskell as well yeah right and if it compiles yes, the, the compiler has got your back so you don't have to worry about it that's right uh well this will be fascinating and i like i mean it seems like the the industry can't help but continue to be pulled in this direction both from the dynamic and the static side we're exploring more of this stuff and where, where does it end? Where does it stop? I guess I'll just have to keep listening to Coded Radio to find out. It's easy to do, though, because you just head on over to coder.show. Go to slash 343 if you want to find this episode. Otherwise, you can find our entire backlog. Head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com to check out all the stuff that we've got. You can find ways to contact us there. You can also check out the calendar to find out when we're live. And go find all the wonderful other Jupiter Broadcasting shows like Linux Action News and Choose Linux. If you want more of me, well, you can find that on the TechSnap program. We've just got our second episode with the new co-host, Jim. So go check that out if you want to get some clarification about what's happening over in the world of OpenZFS and Linux. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. Mike, I believe you're there too. Yep, at Jim Minoko on Twitter. Beautiful. Well, thank you everyone for joining us and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>